We're going to be in Second Peter once again, chapter 3. In chapter 2, if you remember, Peter was warning of a great corruption uh, that the false teachers were bringing in. Um, they were denying the Basically, you can sum it up as they were denying the authority of Christ and his teaching. They were not submitting to the word of God. And there was all kinds of heresies that were coming in as a result of that, which was also giving them license. They were giving themselves license for a multitude of sins because of this. So chapter 2 is a little bit bleak in its warning. But now in chapter 3, Peter's going to return back to kind of the theme that he had in chapter 1, which is that God has given his people gifts and these great promises that are there that will help us avoid temptations and glorify God. So let's look at verse 1. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Verse 2, and you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. First thing here, the first point is he refers to them as the beloved these are the beloved brethren of Jesus Christ. These are us. If we are in Christ, he's talking to us. You're beloved. It's a term we probably don't use enough when referring to the people of God. Because just think about that alone. There's a sermon in that alone. You're loved by God if you've believed him. If you've repented and put your faith in him you're loved by the Creator, the King of Kings. That's amazing. But it also shows us again, it reminds us, who is Peter writing this letter to? It's Christians. It's believers. He says, stirring up your sincere mind. And I hope that's what this does for each of us today. Any, each of us that has a sincere mind, who have sincerely believed Jesus who have sincerely believed his teachings, I hope this stirs up your mind today. I hope it, it just restores or reminds us of a faith that we once had in Christ. And it will cause us to seek after him harder than we already are. And then he talks about the reminder of the predictions of the Holy Prophet. And if you skip down and look at verse 4, we'll see verse 4 in just a minute. He's reminding us of the second coming of Christ. That's what this is basically about. It's the second coming. And he's, he, so he says there in verse 2, you should remember the predictions of the Holy Prophet and the commandment of the Lord, Lord and Savior through your apostles. Through these scriptures, we should be reminded of the second coming. Matthew 24:42 Jesus said, "Watch therefore for you do not know what day your Lord is coming." And I could go we could I could give you a lot of the Old Testament prophecies. If you want a great study to do, go search out Old Testament prophecies that talk about the coming of Christ, both the first and the second. And it's great. But 
and then and then go read more of the New Testament prophecies that Christ will return again. Peter is reminding us of that. And there's a reason for it, and that's what I want to get to today. So verse 3, he says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with mockery, following their own sinful desires. And so he's turning the attention back to false teachers and scoffers, those who mock the truth of the second coming. Have you ever just stopped to think, why do they do this? Why do they mock the truth? Why do they ridicule our belief that Jesus will return again? I mean, if, they don't, if, if you don't believe something, that's one thing. They don't believe it, fine. It's, but they don't stop there. They mock it. Why? Why, would, why do they feel the need to do that? Well, the end of the verse, in verse 3, says it. It's so that they can follow their own sinful desires. Sinful men will mock truth because it makes them feel better about themselves. That, that's the nature of a sinful man. And what we see with this mocking of the, the second coming, the idea of the second coming, the truth of the second coming, is that these men who are doing that, and it's just like going back to chapter 2, they're doing it for one reason. They don't know it. They think it makes them look smart. They feel like it's making them more intellectual. The truth is they do it because they love their sin and they want to continue to be on the throne of their own life. And they think they're there. The problem is they're really not there. They think they're in control, but they're really not. But they love their sin and they're going to continue to do their sin and they justify it by mocking that which is true. Look at verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You keep talking about the miraculous event of Christ's return. You Christians, you keep talking. You've been talking about it for 1,950 years since Peter wrote this. For 2,000 years since Jesus was here on earth. You keep saying it. Nothing's changed. Right? Anybody ever heard anything like that? Sun still comes up in the east, still sets in the west. It hasn't changed. The tide still comes in and goes out. Leaves fall off in the fall. They come back in the spring. All these natural things have never changed. So why would I believe? I've seen it my whole life. We've seen it for thousands of years. Why would I believe that one day the sky is going to be split and Christ is going to return? That's the mockery that we hear. Does any of it sound familiar? I know some of it does to Paul because he's been, and probably other college students in here, if you've had any science classes, because this is the position of much of the modern science today. That's exactly what they teach. There's a theory. I think, I think it's a theory. I don't know. It's, it's an idea. It's a false idea. It's called uniformitarianism. Anybody ever heard of uniformitarianism? Charles Lyell invented it, or came up with it, and it, what it says is the presence is the key to the past. 
And what, what they teach you, and I sat in geology class at Oklahoma State and learned this, that we can observe everything that's happening now, and we know that's the way it's always happened. I mean, why? There's no logical reason to say, okay, well, it's happening this way now, so it's always been that way. And then if, if, if that's the truth, if uniformitarianism is true, then we can also look forward and see that same thing, right? Well, if it's always been that way, naturally speaking, then it's going to be that way always going forward. There's no second coming of Christ. There was no first coming of Christ. You Christians, you're so dim. You haven't been enlightened by our great knowledge that we've learned. But look at what Peter says to this. He says, which, but by the way, um, this is not just the position of science. Because of these false ideas, and this goes back, I mean, when Peter's talking about this, he's talking about before the scientific community grabbed a hold of this and was teaching all this falsity, it was happening in the church. Well, guess what? It's been happening inside church walls ever since. And there's many theologians, there's many pastors who have gotten a hold of this idea and tried to blend the two things together, the Word of God and these false ideas called science, or just false ideas in general, there's many pastors and theologians who don't believe Christ is going to return. Peter takes care of that. Look at verse 5. He says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. His first point here is that God... Did you forget God created all of this? It hasn't been the same through the entire time. God spoke it into existence. God is the one that hovered over the face of the deep. Thank you, boy. These natural processes the scoffers talk about, guess who put them into action? God, Christ, the Creator. He's the one that, if he put them into action, he can certainly interrupt them. He can certainly change them if he wants to. He's the one who controls them. He's the one who sustains them. Look at Job chapter 38. Job 38, verse 4 through 7 says, Were you there? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning song, or the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of glory, or sons of God, shouted for joy. Were you there? I mean, he's talking to Job. Job's making complaints, he's, making, he's, he's bringing arguments to God, and God says, who, who are you? And that's, that's kind of when you look at these scoffers that are mocking us who are believing the truth of Christ, it's as if God's saying right there, were you there? How do you know it's been the same since the beginning? You weren't there. 
when we talk about like these theories of evolution and and the um, the age of the earth and how it's millions of years old and all of these things, it's a simple question. How do you know? How do you know? Were you there? No. No, they don't know. And look at verse 6. He makes another point. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. His second point here is that no, everything has not been the same since creation. These scoffers love to mock the idea of a worldwide flood. But Jesus is clear about it. The Word of God is clear about it. And it's interest, interesting to look at this. This was written over 1,900 years ago. About, 1950, about 1,950 years ago, roughly, is when Peter wrote this letter. And he nails the problem that we have today right on the head. And that's the issue of a worldwide flood. It's the issue of the Word of God in general and it being true. But the issue of a worldwide flood is so critical when in, in understanding natural processes. I mean, when you think about geology, if you've, if you've heard, I mean, and probably everybody's heard some of the uh, rhetoric from the scientific community. But you think about geology, and if you approach looking at the earth with the truth that there was a worldwide flood, it completely changes your perspective of looking at the earth. It explains how there's layers and layers of rock laid down, and it didn't take millions of years. It actually explains much more, much better on how those layers are laid down precisely with distinct lines in between them because you can see, okay, these were laid down rapidly. It also explains how you can have millions of fossils all over the world. You can have marine-type fossils on top of mountains. I was at um, Robbers Cave one year, Robbers Cave State Park, and we're up on top of a mountain. And I'm just, we're just walking along on a trail, and all of a sudden there's this rock on top of the mountain that's carved out and it's obviously that it's been carved out by rushing water it's it's curved and it's kind of like a plateau rock and i just looked at it and it's like it's obvious that that rock was underwater at some point and when it ran off of it 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 shaped it the way it is there's no other way that can happen but it's on top of this mountain there's evidence of this worldwide flood all over the world that's why it was worldwide but man you say that and you are, you're just one of those damn Christians. You just cannot see. You just haven't read enough. You're not smart enough to figure these processes out. No, no, Peter prophesied the issues we're dealing with over 1,900 years ago. That's not dim. That's incredible. And so that, it's, it, so he says, First off, you're forgetting God is the one that created all of this anyway, and he can interrupt it if he wants to. Secondly, it hasn't been the same since the beginning. God interrupted it once again, or he interrupted it one time majorly, and it was for the purpose of judgment. 
And it was not a natural process. It was a supernatural event that caused this worldwide flood. And it was for the purpose of purging his creation for judgment. So to remember this is to believe his promise that he will once again bring judgment on the earth. It's not going to be by water this time. He gave us that promise. We have a fight over the rainbow too, do we not? The rainbow is a great, great reminder. And there's times when it rains for two or three days. I'm very thankful to see that rainbow to remember, okay, we're not going to have to be flooded out again. But scoffers and mockers have hijacked that too. But look at verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Just remember, and remember that a lot of these that he's talking about here are professing Christians. These are professing, professing pastor, pastors, professing theologians. And if they weren't so blinded by their own lust, they could see Peter's clear warning here. Basically, it's this. God created this. He can do what he wants with it. He, he's, he can do that. It's his prerogative to do what he wants. Now, what's amazing and what's awesome for us is He's perfect and he's holy and he's good and he's just. So what he does with it will be perfect, holy, good, and just. But it can change. He can change it. He can do however he he can please himself for his glory. And if they weren't so blinded by their own lusts and desires, they could also see that he's judged it before just as he said he would. And if they could see that, maybe they would see that he will judge it again. Just as he says he will. And then look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, because this verse has been taken out of context so many times, I feel like I need to address that just for a second. Um... It is truly amazing, and I had never really even put this together until I was preparing this message. The very place that Peter is using, the very place in scriptures that Peter is talking against scoffers is the place that many scoffers go to to try to twist things to fit their ideology. Because this verse is misused a lot of times in order to try to make the age of the earth older than what it is. That's not what it's talking about at all. We heard a great lesson this morning on hermeneutics and and just some different things that you need to look for. Well, here's another lesson on hermeneutics context. What is the passage saying? You can't just pluck this verse out and say, well, look at there. One day is a thousand years, so, I mean, seven days is... 7,000 years, and I mean, really, and what does that mean? And we can, so Earth's millions of years old. That's about how the logic goes, right? But that's not what it's talking about at all. It is simply saying that time does not mean to God what it does to us, okay? 
that's that's really all that's all it's saying he's saying and because the next verse he says he does not count slackness as some consider slackness or slowness he's the one who controls time he's the one who created time a thousand years to him is like a day it's kind of like you can kind of get a glimpse of it as you get older does time get seem like it goes by faster as you get older anybody attest to that yeah yeah there's some young people saying yeah well just wait 20 years 15 30 it gets faster every year well i think it's because our just and then compare that to god i mean our wisdom gets older or we get gain wisdom as we get older and the other thing is how does time go when you're in extreme joy does it go slower those times when things are just great, you're with your family, you're on vacation, you don't have the worries, the stress, it's like time just doubles, triples, quadruples, right? And it's like, what happened? Where did it go? But when time is, when things are going really bad, it slows down. Well, think about that from God's perspective. Just from our little finite mind and how we can understand this. God's for, God don't have stress. God doesn't have times of distress. He don't have times of sadness. He's in full control. So time, just looking at that, time means nothing to him. But even more so, he controls it. He can slow it down. He can speed it up. He can do what he wants with it. And that's all this verse is saying. So it may seem like a long time to us. It may seem like a long time ago. To us, 1950 years, I can't fathom that kind of time. So it may seem like a long time ago they made these promises. But to him, it's nothing. To him, it's that time that's short. That's all that Peter's saying here. In verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. <clears throat> some say, some may say, why doesn't he just come back now? Why? Why doesn't he just return and, and end all this? And well, we're impatient, and he's extremely patient. And Peter's making it clear. I mean, somebody, some could say, well, he's just, man, he's, he's taking forever. He's slow. He's slack concerning these promises. But Peter said he's patient because he's waiting for all to come to repentance. And this is another verse that I think is used out of context. It's been misused, and so I need to address that while we're here. Because it says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so many would take this verse and they would say, okay, if you look at this verse, that says right there that God wants everybody, all mankind, to come to repentance. And if you take that verse out of context, it could certainly seem like that is the case. The problem is you have to take the verse in context, just like you did the one before it. You have to consider who 
Peter is writing to. Do you remember the first verse of chapter 3? Who do you call him? The beloved. The sincere at heart. The sincere minds. He is talking here. In this particular verse, he is talking about all of his people to come to repentance. Romans 11.25, you can turn there. Let's turn to Romans. Romans 11.25 says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a, there's a certain people that is determined by God to be saved. And that's who he's talking about, that all shall come to repentance. Um, the delay of Christ's coming is not slack. It's not slowness. It's an act of mercy in his timing until he has brought all of his people to repentance. That's what Peter's saying here. It's important to get this. Verse 6, John 10 and 26 through 30, he says this, But you, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Consider that. He's talking to the Pharisees. You do not believe me. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. It's not the other way around. People get this backwards. It's not, you don't hear me because you're not among my sheep. Or it's not, you're not among my sheep because you don't hear me. You have to get that right. They can't hear him because he, they are not his chosen. They're not in his flock. They're not among his sheep. But when you are among his sheep, and he speaks, and you hear the words of eternal life, then you can hear him. Look on in, in John 10. In verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That's what Peter's talking about. That's what he's talking about when he says it's not his will that any should perish. Remember, he's talking to Christians, but that all shall come to repentance. And when the Father wills something, it's just like go right back a few verses. He created it. He can do it. When He wills something, that's what happens. We don't serve a God who is just sitting, wondering, hoping that you'll repent. We don't serve a God who's going, man, I lost that one. No, it's clear. All that the Father has given to him belong to him, and he will not lose one. And he will wait, and he will be patient in this time until every single one the Father has given to him repents and turns to Christ. And that may happen today. And that may happen years from now. There may, there may still be some not born. 
that are going to be born and come to repentance, or it may happen tomorrow. We don't know, but the time, the timing seems slow to us. It's not to God. He's patient, and his patience is, is, is mercy. His patience is grace on those that he loves. Verse 10. <clears throat> but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord, or the second coming, Malachi 3.2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Malachi 4.1 and 2 says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will, stu- will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. He's talking about the coming of Christ. And it's going to come like a thief. Unexpected. Unannounced. The thief does not let you know, hey, I'm coming to your house tonight. You better be ready today because it's happening. No, he sneaks. He, He doesn't allow the person who is going to be the receiver of that to know. That's how Christ is going to come. He's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be quick. It's going to be like the twinkling of an eye. Unannounced. Which is why we should be on a constant lookout for him. There's not a time like, okay, now the, the guy has announced that Christ is going to return in 2022. So in a couple of years, I'm really going to start looking out for him. No. Our calling is to be on a constant lookout for the return of Christ. We're to look for signs. We're to look for things. Peter said in the last days there's going to be scoffers. Does anybody see those signs today? Absolutely we see those signs. Absolutely they're there. So we should be looking even more so today, moving forward, tomorrow, the next day, we should be watching for the return of Christ. We should be waiting. We should be yearning for it. We should be desiring it. And the truth is, as I studied this, I thought, I'm not. I do not yearn for the return of Christ like I should. I do not desire it like I should. Why? Because I find myself loving this earth. I find myself loving this world, and I should not be that way. We should pray. We should get in the Word, and we should read these promises and seek after Him so that we would be watching waiting because it's reality the heavens will really be rolled back i know it doesn't seem to fit naturally i know it hasn't ever happened before that doesn't matter a worldwide flood had never happened before noah and he was scoffed at and he was mocked but what happened him and his sons were saved and the rest of the world perished is it any different no the world is going to be destroyed by fire And they can scoff and they can mock, but when it comes time, we'll be like Noah, we'll be spared. 
And they will perish if they don't repent. And because of these great promises, well, look, look at verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So how should we now live? Because of the great promises, we should live glorifying to Christ. It's really that simple. Because of the warning of judgment, we should live glorifying to Christ. The elements are going to be dissolved. The earth, the planets, the stars, all of these things are going to be burned up. The only things that are going to survive the fires of judgment on the earth are expressions of holiness and godliness. The only thing that we do that's going to last through that fire are the things that are glorifying to Christ. The things that are done on this earth for Him. That's it. And how much effort, this is extremely convicting to me, how much effort, how much time, how much thought do I put into things that are simply going to burn? And I know we have to live our lives. I know we have to go out and we have to make a living. We have to do these things. But how unbalanced do I get on firewood? Basically, that's all it is. I mean, it would be like, it would literally be like taking a piece of firewood, cut it down, get it split. It looks a little rough. I'm going to get out some sandpaper. I'm going to start with the heavy grit, and I'm going to sand it down. I'm going to get all the bark off of it. I'm going to sand it down, get it smooth, and then I'm going to go to a finer grit. I'm going to get it so smooth like, like a cabinet. It still doesn't look quite right. Better put some finish on it, polish it up, put a nice coat of varnish or polyurethane, really get it good and shiny. I've just spent a week on this piece of firewood and then take it in and throw it in my fireplace. It makes no sense. Yet that's what we do when we get so caught up with the cares of this world. It's all it's all going to burn. So we need to focus because these things are true and we believe them. And I know you believe them. We need to consider how we live our lives. And when you're dealing with temptation as well, think about that second coming. We know, we heard this morning that God's eyes are on us all the time. He's all seen. He sees everything you do. I saw a meme the other day. Pretty good. It said, what happens in Vegas, God still sees. That's a, that's a reality. But it, also, it, it, almost, it almost makes it more tangible to think Jesus could return right now. Would I want to be doing this? Is this what I would be doing? And you're struggling with a temptation. You're struggling with a sin. Think about that second coming. Would I want to be doing whatever it is? And in verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. <clears throat> Just like the flood in Noah's day purged the earth of its sin and left 
a small portion of God's elect, this fire will do the same. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Look at Isaiah sixty-five seventeen. <clears throat> He says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. It, it's going to be created new. And remember, we're looking, at, we're looking at a junk heap of the original creation. We're, looking at, we're not looking at the creation that God said was very good. Because of two things. Well, really because of one thing, which is sin. But it happened in two different times. When, when God ended paradise and he, and he removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, the earth got a whole lot worse and death was introduced and, and the thorns and the thistles and the curse was put on the earth. But then the flood came and things got even worse. That natural phenomenon that changed everything, or supernatural phenomenon, that changed the natural processes from then on. We don't have the same earth that they had then. But we're going to get a new one. It's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be glorious. And it won't be tainted with sin. And it won't be cursed any longer. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. And that's something to consider, to look forward to, to see what God can do. We, we have not even seen the touch of his creative hand. It's infinite. And you can go in this world and you can see some glorious things. Ronnie talks about Montana. It's probably the most beautiful place on earth. I don't know if it really is, but I know it is beautiful there. And anywhere in the Rocky Mountains, you drive up through there, and you're talking just gorgeous. Or you, I mean, and you look at all the different types. Rainforests are beautiful. You go to the east and see the incredible foliage on the trees and all of that, and think, this is the junk heap. We haven't even seen what God can do, but we will. We will see it. verse 14 he says therefore beloved since you are waiting for these be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace so because of all of this because God is going to keep his promise of judgment because God kept his promise of judgment with the flood and because he has delivered us out of this judgment Can I remind you of that this morning? He is a wrathful God, but we don't have to stand in that wrath. That's amazing. That's glorious. He is going to destroy this with fire, but we won't be in the fire. That's amazing. Since we are waiting for his return, this is our reason. This is our hope. This should help us live without spot and blemish. It's easier, isn't it, to look at it that way than to think, well, if I, if I mess up, God's going to punish me. I grew up thinking that. It doesn't work out very well. You keep lowering the bar. 
You keep failing. You keep failing. But now, with a look at a hope and a love, and not to mention the Holy Spirit who dwells within you and gives you this capability, you can live this way. So are you struggling with sin? Are you struggling with your time with God, with praying, with reading? Consider these things. Think about what Peter's saying here. Look for the return of Christ. There will be no train whistles in the new heaven and new earth, I hope. Verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. Verse 16, and he does in all, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these manners, or matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Just like we heard in verse 9, God's God's patience is for the purpose of salvation. And then look at how Peter confirms Paul's writings here. Yes, there are things that are hard to understand. Anybody ever read Paul's writings? And I don't quite understand this. Well, this is not because Paul didn't do a good job explaining them. The reason they're hard to understand is because God is a complex infinite God. He is so much higher than us. His ways are so much higher than our ways. To grasp some concepts of God is difficult. It's, and I promise you, Paul would tell you if he was alive, they're difficult to write down too. I'm sure he struggled with some of those things as well, even though he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the false teachers take this, the ignorant people take this as, an, as a chance, as an opportunity. If it's hard to understand, I can twist it. Why? Again, the same reason for my own sinful desires. He says as they do other scriptures. But Peter confirms with this statement that Paul's writings are in fact scripture. We see agreement between two great apostles here two great writings here he confirms paul's inspiration of the holy spirit and thus he confirms paul's entire testimony you remember going through paul's writings he was paul was constantly dealing with people who said he wasn't a true apostle well here the apostle peter basically says he is and that's important The Word of God is true. It is fact. We can stand on it. It stood the test of time. And he also shows this. He also shows that the apostles were in unison on Christ's return. The false teachers may have been twisting this. The false teachers may have been saying Christ isn't going to come back. The false teachers may have been saying somehow that he... I mean, they twisted it all kinds of different ways. But here you have Paul and Peter agreeing on it. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He says, Brethren, you know better. And I'm talking to you here at Sovereign Grace Bible Church in Ada. You know better. You're not going to fall into these false ideas. You're not going to fall into these people who would like to twist scriptures so that they can find ways to continue in their sinful deeds. This congregation, you probably already knew these things. You knew Christ is coming again. And like Peter, I'm just reminding you, and I hope it's stirring up your sincere minds. Or maybe this is new to you. Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've not heard of Christ's return or His final judgment, and that's okay, but now you have. Now you have, and you know to be watching and looking for it. And Peter has warned us of all the false teachers and their goals and their end games and they're everywhere. It's so important that we develop discernment from the scriptures because it to think to be arrogant enough to think that we couldn't be misled would be a dangerous thought. It would be a dangerous thought. And so that's why it's so important that we continue to search the Scriptures like the good Bereans and test whether these things be so. And that way we can avoid getting caught up into these personal lusts of these false teachers. And He's shown us that. And now He's shown us, he's, he's shown us according to His Word how to live according to His will. And, and now with Peter, his final words here, He's given us another way, another tool, another weapon to fight temptation, another weapon to fight depression, another weapon to fight false ideas and false teachers, and that is by looking to the second coming of Jesus Christ, looking forward to His return, thinking about Him. Anybody when they were children ever have grandparents going to visit? I remember my grandparents lived eight hours away. One, one set of my grandparents lived eight hours away. And I can remember just when they were coming, man, the excitement was so high. And it seemed like forever. You talk about a time when time slowed down. That was one of them. For a little kid, time goes slow anyway. But you're waiting on your grandparents that you hadn't seen for months. You would, I would sit, I would, I remember there was a big cedar tree in our front yard. If I climbed all the way to the top of that cedar tree and stuck my head out, I could see the highway. We were about a quarter mile off the highway. And I would, I would climb up there and set, set. I didn't have, I was not a patient kid. I did not like sitting still. But for some reason, I was so excited I could climb this cedar tree and I could sit and watch that highway. And then when I saw them turn off, I could be down the tree by the time they got down the road. And it was, it was like every second counted, like I could not wait to see them. How much more should we be with the returning of Christ? How much more patient should I be sitting in a tree watching and waiting? You guys, you guys want to come on?
Tim and <clears throat> to think about that gave me encouragement. To think about that gave me hope. Um, it felt like it gave me power over sin. I think so. I, I, my prayer is that as we as we fight against these temptations, as we fight against false teachers, this would be a strength to us that we would climb that tree and we would watch for Christ and that everything else would not matter. That's the way it was when I was a kid. Nothing else mattered. I, it was, I probably missed dinner several times. But that didn't matter. Grandpa and Grandpa were coming. Well, how much more now? And so we need to take all these things into, into account. We need to become more stable and more firm on that blessed rock, which is Christ. And it's all, everything, every, every bit of it, every part of it is for His glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I praise You. I thank You, God, for this, this text. That You've given me and I pray, God, my biggest fear right now is that I'm looking forward to your coming right now. And it's on my mind and it's right there in the front of my mind. And I can't wait. My biggest fear is tomorrow my mind will wander back. Father, keep my mind on Christ. Keep our minds on Christ. That's my prayer. Let us look for His coming. God, help us. Give us the strength. Give us the desire. It's Your Holy Spirit that has done all of these good things in us. And I pray that He would just give us a special vision. Give us a special line of sight this morning towards the coming of Christ. And in His name I pray. Amen.